0: prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and american patriot here's civil liberties enthusiast second amendment defender and indefinitely suspended fbi agent kyle Serafin. good morning
1: my friends thank you so much for joining us on the kyle Serafin show We want to welcome all of you back uh for this monday we have our long form interview and i'm going to introduce a, a patriot and a friend of the kyle Serafin show um we're going to be bringing on Steve Gray, who's a retired FBI agent. And if he looks familiar to you, you've seen him on Newsmax. You might have seen him on OANN. You could have seen him on Real America's Voice or Sirius XM Radio if you listen to his voice. Uh, he was on said Gorka's show with me a few times. And he's been in print with the New York Post, Fox News Online, and Town Hall. If you live in New Jersey, he was a congressional candidate in Congressional District 4. Uh, a little bit about Steve. Steve spent his time working in the FBI Uh, at the New York field office, and also out of the FBI's headquarters. We'll talk a little bit about his experience uh, working Chinese CI. We'll talk about how he spent some time on the covert surveillance group, which is uh, something I did as well. So I think we can compare some fun notes on that. He was a team leader for the evidence response team, also a team leader on that surveillance team. Firearms instructor for 17 years, my kind of guy. Uh, also on the rapid deployment team, which was something that uh, they could activate and send him worldwide. He worked on some complex financial crimes and then uh, East Asian affairs. Before that, he was a police officer. Something we see so frequently is either police officers and military folks who have that background understand really what the uh, what the oath is about because it's not the first time they've sworn it. Um, eight years with Summer Point PD. So we'll get into his time as a patrolman and a and a uh, sergeant at a very young age. And I just want to welcome Steve Gray. So good to see you, bud. Uh, I feel very underdressed. I was just telling you but uh for folks to know i'm sitting in an rv trailer that's about 30 degrees uh with the space heater trying to warm the sucker up so i will be in a puffy and you will be looking highly professional uh, as we expected our new york uh field office uh supervisors to look i think as they came out yeah
0: yeah absolutely uh we always uh, dress to impress in the new york office
1: it's a it's a thing but if you're seeing all these photos going around you're seeing these fbi agents showing up in you know uh plaid untucked shirts and jeans what do you think about that being kind of a uh, pre-9-11 bureau guy.
0: Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't agree with it at all. I don't agree with the combat boots and uh the um you know the 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 9-11 pants, that sort of thing, the 511 pants. I don't agree with it at all, man. Um, I think that uh, you know, agents should dress to impress. Now, if you're in the office and you're just doing paperwork at your desk, yeah, you can dress in your jeans and that sort of thing. But you know, if you're out on the street, or you're in, you know, you have to meet with somebody or you, you've you got a uh, meeting in the office, then you need to be dressed properly. And I, I'm again, I'm old school. I'm old school, uh, I'm old mm-hmm. school police officer. Um, I had a chief of police who would uh, give you demotion if you weren't wearing your hat on a traffic stop. So uh, I get it. He wants everybody to look extremely promotion, uh, professional then. And I believe it needs to be done now. I, I think it sends a message to the general public that uh, we mean business.
1: There's something there. There's maybe that is part of the erosion of the culture, which I know we're going to talk about. Let's um, let's kind of get in. I, I gave your background, but I want to kind of run through. You spent uh, how old were you when you joined the Summers Point PD in
0: 1990? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So uh, I was kind of in college, and uh, my dad made me take the test. So um, I, I went out and I, I took the test, and uh, it's it's funny. Um, I scored extremely high on that test, and I had multiple police departments request an interview. So I went out and I, I interviewed at the, the police departments and um, I actually chose the police department in the same town that I was born and raised in because I knew the town uh, like the back of my hand. So um, I was uh, 20 years old when I entered and graduated from the police academy. I love it. It's funny that uh,
1: that is something the fbi actually doesn't like yeah and i don't know if that was the same policy when you came in but going back to a town that you're from is something the, the bureau fights you on and they will move you somewhere so that you don't know people but there's a, a massive institutional knowledge that you lose when you take people away from a place that they know so well and and, and and pds do the exact
0: opposite what do you think that is yeah i i don't know i don't know why they do that and you know it just makes those individuals suffer Um, now when I went to the New York office, you know, I was from New Jersey, I'm South Jersey, not North Jersey. So there was a bit of an adjustment there. Um, but you know, the other two individuals who came to New York with me were New Yorkers. They wanted to go back. And generally, um, you know, if you are a New Yorker, you go back, but you know, if you're a New Jersey guy, you could be sent anywhere in the country. They just don't, you know, they don't do that. Um, it's so funny because my roommate was from Louisiana and uh, you know, I I needed a Louisiana to English dictionary just to understand what he was saying at the time. And that's uh, right. You know, it's it's funny, but he begged, pleaded, and and you know, he said, Listen, if I get sent to New York or any other city up north, he goes, My wife's gonna divorce me and you know, I'm gonna be I'm gonna leave the bureau. Um, he yep. actually ended up in Alabama and he stayed there his entire career. So good for him.
1: Yeah, because his odds are not good of going somewhere else that was similar close to home.
0: Yeah, he's a great guy. Absolutely.
1: It's was it? Was he a kunas? You know what that is?
0: Uh, I don't know.
1: We'll, well, people will throw it in the comments for you, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a Louisiana term. It's a it's a sort of a self deprecating thing that uh, I, I actually had a, a funny chef that worked for me when I ran a restaurant because I lived a weird life, and uh, like you say, half the time I couldn't understand him. And if he'd hit if he'd been hitting the bourbon, I couldn't understand almost anything. He'd uh, always keep a bottle of Jack Daniels next to the to the to the grill, and he'd come out and he'd go, "Hey, oh, Bob, we're going to bring on this whole now. you are going to do this whole thing. Do it for ten ninety nine. dollars 99 oh, oh, yeah. and you go. Yeah. What's the food cost on that again? And he goes, it's Oh, three. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's that's awesome, dude. It,
0: he did say, he did mention that he says, you know, I'm from Louisiana and he says, you know, um, you know, when you're born, they literally put a shotgun in the crib with you. That's what he told me. Um, yeah. Weapons familiarization, to, you know, to shoot, you know, and uh, he says, you know, he could shoot. He said, but he was an attorney. And, uh, he, he said he was unfortunately blessed with 10 year old arms, so he couldn't do a pull up to save his life. And back in okay. the old days, we had to do pull-ups. So, uh, I helped him with pull-ups and made sure I got him through that. And, uh, he helped me with legal and made me sure that I got through that. So it, it was a great partnership.
1: I love it. Yeah. So it's funny. My, uh, my little buddy, that was my academy roommate who I always tell everybody is a narc, he must be, cause he was too nice. And, uh, And he had a, he caught a fastball in the head when he was a young kid. So he had like short-term memory loss. He would do the funniest things. He would literally go into a room, do sort of the tactical clear. They teach, you You know, you go to corner to corner and then he would, you know, kind of put his gun down into the sole position and and he would look around and the instructor would go, you know, plum, did you check all the corners? And then he would look and then he would, he would go, he would come right out of roll and he would go, ah, I actually don't know. (laughs) and they would go it's okay Plum, no big deal you know and he literally didn't know he actually didn't know it. we would go do things to him and he would be having conversations with an instructor and i'd walk up and slap him on the back and i go it's the fifth time you said that today buddy but you're doing great you know and then he would look around with a panicked eye because there's nothing funnier than a guy who just knows how to laugh about his own issues yeah. uh, how he does in court i'm sure he takes you know very diligent notes and refers to them when he testifies but uh out of the boston office great dude um also suspect you never know right it totally could be an arc so you did uh five years as patrol you got promoted at a pretty young age then to the to the supervisory position when you're at the pd how did that go down
0: yeah absolutely so um i I was uh i know as soon as i was eligible to take the test i took the sergeant's test and uh i scored number one on that test uh beating out individuals who've been on the force 20 and 30 years and um uh i was called into the chief's office and he looked at me and he said Nope. You're too young to be a sergeant. He says, go back out on the street. <laughs> that's funny. So, uh, you know, in, in, in today's world, you know, guys would be suing for age discrimination and that sort of thing. But, you know, that's not you know, I get it. I understood what he was saying. You know what I mean? And um, I went back out on the street and I learned some more from the experienced sergeants. Um, so it took another two years. And then I was promoted to sergeant under the same list. And uh, I was still the youngest sergeant ever promoted in history in that department.
1: You know, there's a thing about paying your dues that people don't want to do anymore. You know, I joined the FBI. I was uh, 35 years old and I was considered the oldest guy. I was the oldest guy in my basic training flight. And I always thought that was a good thing. It's like I brought a little bit of experience to the table. You know, I had a little bit of gray in my beard by the time I even got to the bureau. And, uh, you know, having a little bit of salty muzzle is never a bad thing. You know, you got 25 year old kids. There's a a silliness. This guy told me uh, he was 25. His last job was like an unarmed security guard in Detroit at the zoo. And uh, he was picking up brass and, and, you know, he drops a knee and he picks up brass and he goes, I'm getting too old for this stuff, you know? And, and I go, take it easy, Danny Glover. And he goes, who's Danny Glover? And you can't, you can't inspire confidence with local police departments. If you're out there on a, with a task force and you don't know who Danny Glover is, uh, come on. Like, and so there's something to be said about earning your keep, like spending that time, uh, you know, working through and paying your dues. I feel like maybe that's something the Bureau has lost too, because there's an attitude about it's, you know, it's. I'm I've earned this. It's for me, as opposed to like what am I doing to serve? Did you did you see a transition at some point when you were working there? Or is that just oh, is that just I, me being salty?
0: No, I, absolutely. I, I saw a huge transition. You know what? When it when it really started to change, um, there was a hiring freeze um you know prior to 9/11. Mm-hmm. And then after 9-11, that that January and February, the FBI just started hiring agents at will. I don't think they were doing proper background checks. I don't think they were doing the 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 proper um, uh, investigation into these individuals. And um, we got a lot of terrible agents out of those classes because, you know, it's they a lot of these individuals that are going into the FBI that are screened out are the ones that think that FBI is just like TV, and it's not like TV. It's actually the complete opposite of TV, and really only the only thing TV does is it, it's basically just a propaganda tool for the FBI to bring people in and it always yep. has been the FBI and TV are exactly the opposite nothing is exactly the same you know what they pull together in 60 minutes takes us years to complete that's that's so
1: true uh how many times did you and your team jump on the uh, the g5 and fly out to a crime scene was that a thing you did yeah did you ever no, do that with did
0: <laughs> as, as they didn't matter, you, you, you did not put you I'd be stuck in traffic for hours in New York City just trying to get to the crime scene. That's so, it, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. you get the phone call and then it's like, you know, I always tell people that uh, and, and you have a good experience being former PD because we're not first responders, although the FBI loves to paint themselves in that that thing. And I think that's a false that's almost a stolen dollar because yeah. we're not first responders. We're like the detectives that come in after the fact for, a, you know, a, but we're not even usually the first on scene for that. If it's a local crime or if there's something we're going to take over, I know they had a lot of mob stuff that went on in, in the, in the old days in New York and they were still going to be the third or fourth on scene. It was going to be, you know, they were going to, somebody was going to secure the scene and somebody was going to go in there and ask all the witnesses. And then they were going to find a federal nexus. And then somebody finally said, this is too big. We're calling the Bureau. Um, It's just a very different, it's, it's so funny how badly, the, uh, the propaganda, you know, sort of does a disservice, I think, to the recruiting, to the recruiting arm.
0: It, it does. And, um, you know, I saw it firsthand um, when I took my very first test with the FBI, the guy came in and uh, he was really, you know, you know, it was, it was a lot of propaganda. He was really, you know, basically getting us up and ready to go for the test and that sort of thing. And I, I didn't think it was needed, you know, I was already ready to go for the test. So, yeah. Um, right. I didn't need the extra propaganda about, you know, how great the FBI was I already knew. But that was then. And this is now. And um, then, you know, I was blessed with uh, the um, experience level of the agents that were working around me. Um, I, you know, I, I was actually able to work with agents, FBI agents that were hired under the Hoover years. You know, right. the, guys at the very end of their career, I got to meet and talk with um, one agent in particular, uh, just a great guy, older guy, big, you know, strong, you know, nobody was going to mess with him, worked organized crime for years, always wore a suit and tie. Um, we got called up to drive all the way up to the um, to uh, uh, the Bronx from Manhattan, which is a long drive in traffic. Uh, what we were going to do there was we were going to pick up a gang member who was, Um, basically, uh, he was, you know, he was involved with a a bunch of individuals and they were basically, um, bringing underage girls down into the New York area, uh, for, um, sex trade and he got busted. Um, so he was being charged under the state statutes and we, as federal agents were going down to pick him up, to bring him back and charge him federally. And, um, when we got there, a lot of his gang member friends were there trying to support him uh, within the courthouse and not in specifically in the courtroom. So when we brought him out, he started, started doing his gang walk and, you know, started spewing, you know, talking gang talk and getting everybody riled up and all. And this this FBI agent who was a big guy from, hired under Hoover, took him by the, the arm and just walked him over to the wall by himself and they had a conversation And to this day, I still don't know what was said in that conversation. He never told us. Um, And that that gang member who was handcuffed and under arrest and headed to our car never said another word, stood up straight and walked out of the courtroom right to the car like a gentleman. It was amazing.
1: It's a little come to jeeves moment. What's funny is that guy probably just based on the, you know, the sort of the, the odds we could play, probably had some issues with uh, maybe a father in his life. And maybe that's why he chose that life. And sometimes having a strong masculine male figure tell you to stand up and act right. Uh, it can go a long way. And and I know you've seen it like as a cop, you, you tell somebody you can sometimes scare them straight. Sometimes you could just be polite. There used to be some real, real power. And I, and I think it still exists, but it's it's tailing off that those three letters, F.B.I., um they inspired confidence, they inspired a lot of uh, respect. They opened doors for you when and they inspired uh, you know civil behavior from people who would otherwise be uncivilized. And the sad thing about the tarnish that you and I are seeing, and I know it's it's really degrading to the to the guys that are retired is that it just is it's it's eroding that legacy that you guys, you know, participated in. and I, and I love that you're still wearing a suit and 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 I, I was almost going to tell you, don't do it, but then I wouldn't then you wouldn't be you. So you you gotta you gotta do the thing that that you believe that that you're representing that brand and that brand is not the same. Uh, in fact the brand looks more like what I'm wearing right now in the office most of the time and going on arrest warrants. I just actually posted a picture of it. I don't know if you saw our Twitter, but like you know, they're they're agents, they're all in mishmash, nobody is wearing the same raid jacket. It's just it's not the same animal, unfortunately.
0: And that used to drive me crazy as a firearms instructor in the police department. We all had to wear the same clothing at the the police range when we were firing. And when I first got to the FBI range, what the heck's going on here? Nobody was like, I came dressed in an FBI t-shirt with 511 pants and all ready to go with my FBI hat. And I'm looking at everybody and they, they, whatever they could find within their closet that day to throw on and head out to the range. And Mm -hmm. to this day, it hasn't changed, but I never changed. I continued to wear the professional attire, even when I worked the line, um, because it was important to me to, to look professional.
1: I love it. The thing that I uh, also like is that you speak about as quickly as I do, which is sometimes <laughs> it's too much for people. Just You got the New Jersey, New York sort of uh, speed talk and i uh, that's how I process things too. So nobody has to turn this podcast into like one and a half or two X to listen to. They can listen to it in real time and still catch all the info. Um, I want to I get your, your take. And uh, so we're going to go back to 1999. Um, you entered the bureau, you had two full years, you got off probation before 9-11. So maybe tell us, what it was like going through probation um, in the New York field office and what it you know what it looked like. And then you you guys were dead center. I mean, it was you in Washington, D.C. that took the hits on, on 9-11. So you got to see that as an FBI agent. Maybe just walk us through those couple years of years in the beginning.
0: Yeah, well, you know, as agents in New York, we're, we're all sent to the applicant squad as baby agents to work, you know, basically background investigations on FBI agents or congressional aides, that sort of thing. And then uh, from there, we did a rotation We went out to um, the operations center, the the New York operations center, which was uh, just an amazing place to work in. Um, And then from there, we would go out to do uh, work on a surveillance squad, which is another amazing uh, time of my life at that time. And then from there, uh, we were assigned basically a squad. Well, you know, I was I was a, a hardcore police officer and I wanted to work criminal cases. But at the time, there was a need to fill uh, foreign counterintelligence t- seats in, in the New York office, they just were really down, and everybody that was coming out of the applicant squads was basically going to counterintelligence. So, I so, said, Well, I'm going to give this a shot, you know, see how it goes. And, uh, um, I had a great supervisor at the time, and, uh, you know, we were working together on cases, and I was working East Asian affairs, and, um, uh, you know, I, I just I just didn't in, I wasn't enjoying it as much as I wanted to work criminal and I was listening to these guys working criminal out on the street, you know, going right. to members and that sort of thing. So um I started writing, you know, messages and sending them off to the ASAC asking for a transfer.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got like, to,
0: right? Like you, you yeah, made your how it was, was that received? How was that received uh, well, at that time? You know, I had a good ASAC at the time. It was not a big deal. Um he so I you know, I thought the more I sent, maybe I'd finally bug him enough you he uh, <laughs> send me over. <laughs> But instead he called me in the office and says, listen, Gray, you're not going anywhere. So enjoy your time here on, a, on, in FCI. And I said, okay, great. And so I, I embraced that and I went back and, uh, I continued to do my job the best I could. Um, so, uh, you know, flipping into nine 11, um, I was, uh, you know, the FBI at the time in New York was like one of the only offices that didn't have a gym to work out in. And I worked out religiously every morning. So, um, for some reason, I don't know if it was traffic or whatever. I got to New York late that day, and um, I I grabbed my my bag and I parked my car and I went over to the gym to work out. And it's interesting. Um, I knew a lot of guys there that were working in the um, the trade centers at the time, and you know we get to talking to them because the gym was almost right next to the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. So I'm leaving the gym, and just as I come out of the doors. Um, I hear this horrific sound and uh, it sounded like a missile, literally sounded like a missile. I didn't know it was a plane at the time. And then there was a slight pause and then the loudest explosion I'd ever heard. And I looked up and I could see the fireball coming out of the World Trade Center and thousands of, uh, you know, um, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper just flying everywhere. So um, right. I literally ran back to the Bureau, which is about, I, I would to say about six blocks I, you know, I hightailed it back as fast as I could. Uh, I was dressed and ready to go. I just didn't have my gun. It was locked uh, up in, in the FBI building. So I wanted to make sure I had that. I wasn't sure what was going on. So we went in, I met up with my colleagues. Uh, we were on the 25th floor at the time and, uh, we're getting our radios. We're gathering up our information. We're, you know, um, just making sure we and preparing that we had everything when we could see the second plane coming around and, uh, It hit and struck the World Trade Center. And then we knew it wasn't an accident. And uh, we basically as a group, uh, my squad hightailed it out of the FBI building six blocks back to the World Trade Center where um, I won't get into the graphics, but I saw probably the most horrific scenes I'd ever seen in my life, even more so than being a police officer.
1: Sure. And and since then, I mean, you were on the evidence response team, which sometimes can be some ugly stuff or body recovery and things like that. I can't imagine any of those ever held a candle to what you saw on,
0: on 9-11. No, a- absolutely not. And um, uh, r- right after that, I, I was assigned leads. We, I was working leads. Uh, I volunteered for the midnight shift. Not many guys were doing that. So I volunteered sure. to work and uh, the midnight shift in the FBI was like six in the morning to eight o'clock and I'm sorry, six at night to like eight o'clock in the morning at the time. Um, right. It was a long shift. So I volunteered to work the overnights to go out, knock on doors in the middle of the night in some of the worst neighborhoods in New York City, trying to get information on what was going on. And then um, I uh, was lucky enough to get pulled into the operations center. So I get pulled into the operations center to basically um, they, they needed a lot of assistance with the, a lot of the leads that were coming in uh, to prioritize the leads after reading the information and determine, you know, who was going to investigate them based on the um, the level of the lead. So uh, I now have... we were, were
1: agents sorting those leads at that time or was it coming through analytical people?
0: It, it was coming through analytical people. And I will say this. And, you know, I don't I whatever you want to say about the FBI, they weren't prepared for this. And right. they didn't know what what we, they were going to do because, you know, w- when the trade centers fell and everything went to hell, um, we lost electric within our building. We couldn't have operated there if we wanted to based on, you know, the toxic fumes that were coming from the World Trade Center and the fact that there was no electricity. They didn't have a plan for us as to where sure. to go. So we actually ended up in the belly of the USS Intrepid so and and that's where we ended up uh, literally on the water in the intrepid uh setting up the command post and getting ready to to uh go ahead and work now i don't know if they were going to lean on the nypd's command post but the problem with that was their command post was in world trade center 7 which fell that night so yes um, and if people aren't familiar with it you know when both towers fell uh they mushroomed out and took out every building around them and Uh, World Trade Center 7 was I think about 50 stories. So it was just completely crushed. And, um, you know, from what I understand, they also had um, diesel tanks in there to supply a lot of the command center and that sort of thing. And they caught fire and the building burned and then fell just like the World Trade Center's. um, Yeah, that's
1: wild. People, I think people do often forget that, that there was a third building that went down there and it was, you know, in the aftermath and that was evacuated at the time. Did they have it uh, emptied out?
0: Yeah. So, you know, when we were down there at the World Trade Center, what we were doing as FBI agents, again, we weren't first responders and we were in touch with the fire department and the fire department was telling us, don't go near the building because people were jumping and um, they didn't want to see us get seriously hurt. So there really wasn't much for us to do. The firemen were handling uh, that part, but what they had asked us to do is after uh, the towers hit, all of the buildings around the towers were evacuating and there was tens of thousands of people who were coming out on the street but were just in shock at what they were seeing so what we were doing is we were basically shuffling them up the streets and out of the area as quickly as we could just asking people to go 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 and uh that's what they were doing at the time and that's how that's how so many people ended up over the walking over the brooklyn bridge at the time
1: sure i'm gonna um I'm going to ask you to contrast an experience. And so for folks who have never seen it before, if you look over Steve's left shoulder, which is on the right side of my video screen, you'll see his retirement creds. That's what FBI credentials look like. And, you know, you witnessed what I think was probably the most horrific and the most important FBI investigation, trying to dig up people who killed, you know, 3000 plus Americans on American soil with a, a legitimate conspiracy to end American life, to change our way of life, which we've all been living through for the last 20 plus years. Um, you retired in January of 2022, which means you saw about a year of the January 6th investigations, at least peripherally as an agent, maybe give me a contrast of the, what you claimed is the most horrific scene. And I have no reason to think otherwise the most horrific scene you've ever seen versus, uh, um, the January 6th riot that resulted in what the FBI says is the biggest case they've ever worked. How, How, I mean, how does that make you feel as a guy who did 20 years in an agency like that or
0: 22 years? disgusts me because that's not the case um the problem with the january 6 investigation which is one of the reasons why i left uh you know i'm working within uh as an acting supervisor within the new york operations center and um i'm i'm witnessing firsthand how they're treating the january 6 investigation and how they're treating the january 6 arrestees and it's disgusting because you know nine times out of ten If you have somebody on a misdemeanor warrant, the FBI is going to call them on the phone and ask them to come down to FBI headquarters and be processed. We'll take them over to court. And then generally on a good day, those people could be back home by by five o'clock in the afternoon, you know, um, after their court appearance. But we weren't doing that with January 6th protesters. You know, we were sending 10 man arrest teams out to knock on their door at six in the morning, first in, whether they had kids or a wife or dogs, it didn't matter burst in, search their home, arrest the individual, bring them back, and then no bail. I mean, a lot of times they were, especially if they couldn't make bail at such a high bail, they were stuck literally in prison, uh, in in jail for uh, a long period of time.
1: Sure. Now, there were uh, people that were in the United States that were related to the, the 9-11 hijackings that didn't make it on the planes that were part of the planning. And I'm sure there were arrests and search operations that were engaged in for that. Do you have any recollection of what those things looked like? Did you ever, you know, hear peripherally because, uh, you know, were those New York field cases? Did they come out of Washington? Like, how do they run those cases? You know, those you know.
0: cases. There, there was cases all over the country afterwards, uh, uh, you know, concerning that. So, um, you know, they went after those individuals religiously, you know, um, but, you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of agents concerning, you know, the investigation leading up to um, 9-11 before, prior to 9-11, where they had investigations open on terrorist cases that may have had a nexus to 9-11. And those agents all believe that um, things could have been done better and more information could have been shared. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if it would have prevented it, but we definitely would have definitely been able to hit the ground running faster if we had had all of the information beforehand. Um, But no, there's no comparison to these two. Look, we weren't we we were political, but we weren't really a strong political agency back in the uh, the late 90s and early 2000. Um, It's now that we are basically a direct arm of the Joe Biden administration and we are. Uh, doing political hit jobs. And you only need to look at, uh, let's see, we first started taking out you know, conservative journalists and conservative journalist organizations like Project Veritas, right? We uh, came up with some story. I don't know if the evidence is made up. I don't know what the FBI is doing to get these search warrants, right? right. But they go in and they search Project Veritas. They go into James O'Keefe's home to search his home, right? And what are they doing? They're taking all of his electronic the devices. And um, basically, this is a warning to everybody else. If you step out of line, the FBI is going to come for you. So now they're scaring everybody else. Then right. they're taking the information from the electronic devices. And then they're going out and making contact with those people that were on the electronic devices to say, hey, listen, right. if you step out of line, your house could be searched next. Plus uh, the New York I, Times. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. And we, we I think we talked about this before, you know, generally, you know, two to three months after um, uh, the FBI searches a place, usually they bring charges against the individual. Right. Right. That's the goal yeah. of the search warrant. That's the goal of the search warrant. That's exactly right. But was Project Veritas ever charged? I don't believe they were. And they neither, were not. Neither were the workers that uh, of these poor workers that work for Project Veritas. They went to their homes as well and searched their house. Right. You know, we saw the same thing with a search warrant with with Rudy Giuliani. I'm sorry, Rudy Giuliani. Um, You know, listen, hey, if you're on the political side, you're on the conservative side, you're going to be next. We did it to Rudy Giuliani. We can get you too, right?
1: Right, because Rudy is a lawyer that everybody knows his name and he worked under the sitting president at the time and we're going to go after anybody. Um, I want to refocus on something you just said. You said uh, we were a little political back then, but nothing like today or something to that effect. Um, Do you mind... And and here's the thing I love like I I can see how much energy and passion. If, if you're listening to the audio version of this, you know Steve is very animated, and that's probably why we get along too. He's a high energy guy. I know that you still work out a bunch. Um, uh, I you know your picture on uh on Twitter shows you with the sleeveless thing with some guns. He's got the you know he's not working with uh with uh pop guns or, or pellet guns over there. He's got like real arms like a like a like a grown man you'd expect to be doing you know potentially physical violence on behalf of the American people. And I know that you still take that real seriously. I could just tell by of all the conversations we've had, you're in that. You said earlier we were political, but nothing like today, you know, obviously going after journalists, tell me about what it looked like before, what you saw as far as the, the entry-level politics, which we are now in the professional level game as.
0: So, you know, like any organization, any federal state, even, you know, businesses, you have that internal politics thing going, right? It wasn't as bad as, you know, then as it is now. Where if they, you know, the FBI determines that you are a conservative, you're not getting promoted, and they're going to now try to push you out of the FBI as quickly as possible because you don't fit their mold anymore. Which is they want leftist FBI agents, left leaning FBI agents. Don't be fooled by what they're saying on on TV. Christopher Ray saying during you know his interview, oh that never happens. That's bull. It does happen, especially in the New York office. I saw it firsthand. I know a gentleman who has been in the New York office for 32 years, and time after time after time, a great guy, got promoted over because um, uh, he was a conservative. Uh, The last time he he got passed over, he used to wear a red hat to work every day. Nothing was on the hat. It just was a red hat. I've got one of
1: those. It's kind of fun. It It triggers people.
0: It does. Right. Especially in the New York office. And they, they really, they really destroyed this guy because they knew that, you know, even though he was a Trump supporter um, he wore a red hat that said nothing on it. And that was, that was a red flag for everybody. And it was a trigger. It was literally the color triggers people, but it's, uh, it's so weird. But yeah,
1: think about this. Um, People used to make the complaint that the FBI was a very hard right organization and that they were very unfair to people on the left. I think that's been lobbied by a number of people. And I, uh, but then you go back into the '90s, and it's like, who were the Branch Davidians? Who was Randy Weaver? Which we obviously co-signed on somebody else's, you know, screw up. That was the ATF screw up. But the FBI came in and did it and took a lot of the blame at the end of it. Um, it's interesting that you know the left and the right should kind of, if everybody hates you, you're probably doing the right thing. And that seemed like that was more or less the, the case. If the, if the left leaning, you know, despised what the FBI was about because we were mean to people who didn't have money, and the and the right was like, oh, you're coming after religious people, and you're coming after military veterans, and you're you know going after guns and all that stuff. You, you're at least you're you're running the line where you're you're potentially apolitical, or at least your politics are not very obvious. Um, yeah. But you're saying you said that you saw leftist kind of politics
0: throughout New York oh, yeah, the whole time. Absolutely. So you know and. You know, we really started seeing the, the the changeover after the Patriot Act was enacted, right? Um, mm-hmm. We started using that Patriot Act to target U.S. citizens, and it got progressively worse under the Biden, I'm sorry, under the uh, Obama administration, right? Sure. I mean, who used that as a weapon to target political opponents? And it just kept going. There's a reason why James Comey was the director under Obama, because he knew that Obama was a leftist um, FBI director and would do anything to support the cause of the left. That's what really disgusts me because we're not a balanced organization anymore. And the scales of justice mean nothing, right? In this Mm -hmm. organization, Um, you know, in getting to that, you know, look, I've had to prepare my family. I said, listen, You know, there's a good possibility that we're going to get a loud knock at the door at 6 a.m. And we're going to get raided by the FBI because of the things I've been saying online. And, uh, you know, that is a possibility. I have a young daughter here and my wife. And, uh, you know, I have a a very ferocious German shepherd who, you know, is not going to take any crap from an FBI agent coming through the door. And I want to make sure that I can, you know, get that dog put away without some, you know, leftist agent taking a shot at her, you know. Um, Right which is a very possible, you know, a strong possibility, you know? Um, Would you have
1: ever thought that 20 years ago when you were, you know, a new agent? Would that that ever even occur to you that somebody would be serving a search warrant at your house from your own agency that you left after honorable service?
0: Absolutely not. And you got to remember, Kyle, you know, I was an upstanding agent. I did my job. I did it well. And I went home, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Almost every single one of my performance appraisals was the highest level you could get, right? Every year, year after year. Um, right. I never suffered from one disciplinary action ever, right? Not, not one disciplinary action. So I went I on, I did my job, I followed the letter of the law, and I went home every day, you know? Yeah. Um, and and what, what do I get for it, right? I, I get these warning shots that last year, somebody calls me on the phone and says, listen, you know, Steve, you know, the FBI doesn't like what you're saying, you might want to tone it down a little bit, right? is this um, someone you knew or is this someone that they had this call is you somebody i knew from the new york office right okay they use a yep. friend of a friend to go in you know the, the uh, executive management's never going to do their own dirty work right correct use somebody so then after that um you know i'm running for congress and um i get a, a package in the mail and in that package it and it came directly from fbi new york right that's that was the, re- the return receipt i open up the package And inside that package was a hundred morning bands. Now a morning band is a black band that you slip over your badge when a police officer or an FBI agent dies in the line of duty. Right. Yeah. I got a hundred of those in the mail. So what does that say? That says, Hey, you know, if you don't shut up, this could happen to you next. That's my. And
1: and I heard you say that on Gorka. So I'm going to tell you like our, our history actually goes back before you and I met and before we spoke, I was uh, in New Mexico. I was permanently suspended. I'm sitting in, I'm literally like laying in bed, watching TV with my wife. And we turned on and we had all the the fast channels that come through like the Samsung TV or whatever. And I'm watching and they go, you know, we, next up is uh, Steve Gray, you know, former FBI agent out of New York. And I go, well, this will be interesting. Like, I'm really curious. One, I don't have a lot of friends in the New York office and the ones I had were, were not in touch. So I'm um, I'm watching the video, you pop up and you told that exact story yeah. to uh, to Gorka, who's kind of a mutual good, you know, you put us in touch. Yeah. Okay. And I sat there and I thought, is that is that even possible? Like, is like how how crazy would that have been? And at the time, I felt like it was not feasible. And today, I feel like that is the most obvious thing that would be done. And I think Phil would probably nod along over there. He's you guys can't see, but Phil's out there. And th- the idea that the FBI would come after you and and send a veiled threat and that's not that veiled, by the way. Like that's pretty on the nose.
0: Well, you know why, Kyle? You don't go against the family, right? That's if you right. Go against the family. And I, I hate to say this, but, you know, the FBI, they keep toting this uh, this big family. They they want you to be quiet. They don't want the FBI doesn't want people airing the dirty laundry of the FBI. But the American will right. have to realize that we have a lot of dirty laundry that needs to get out. And and unless people start stepping up, it's not going to get out. And there's not many people stepping up, is there, Kyle, to, to, to air this dirty no. laundry? There still isn't. Right. And why is that? No, we could FBI all fit into this trailer, all of us. Yeah. The FBI rules with fear. They rule their that's employees right. with fear and they're doing it with you right now. Right. Hey, if you whistleblow, we're going to do this to you, just like they do with the Project Veritas search and these other searches. That's it. Everybody's done with fear. I feel like sometimes this is an Eastern Bloc country, you know, because, uh, you know, if you step out of line, the FBI is going to come for you. Right. Well, that's what they do in the in, especially on the inside, man they monitor in the New York office, they monitored every step we took with cameras and everything else. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got to the operations center that I knew even more the fact that they could tell FBI New York knows exactly where everybody is at every moment of every time in that building. And they know exactly what you're doing, you know, and it wasn't until I got to the operations center that I knew that. But it's not just that. It's all the outbuildings as well, right? We have, you know, we've I know that maybe hundreds of outbuildings all over New York City. Um, you know these are offsites where you know agents work uh, for different things. We know everything's going on in there as well. It's a yep. crazy system that they have set up. They don't trust their employees, and it's sickening. So going And back-
1: and you can feel that when you work in an agent because I mean, Washington field is very similar, although I never spent time in the op center, the the sense that they could jam you up for a time card fraud, which would be an incidental mistake, or, you know, the fact that we even keep a time card when agents work 50 hours plus, like without really any problems, um, is really amazing to me that that, that was something that they were like, they, you always knew that they had that over you. And everybody tells you, every senior guy, every guy that was like you that was working with a guy like me, you know, with that that di- differential in age and experience would always be like, that's how they'll come get you. They'll get yeah. you with a time card because they know where you are at all times. And, the, you know, I was told, I think Phil might have been the one who told me, I think he told me I had to read a book called The FBI Eats Their are Young. Um, but there's a there's a long history in the Bureau of don't embarrass the Bureau. Don't expose anything about the FBI that's negative because your number one job is to keep the FBI's brand on point, regardless of whether or not that means you're falsifying, you know, you're falsifying records or you're falsifying
0: um, your actual opinions, which was often that
1: they're doing things wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Don't again, don't go against the family and don't embarrass them. But there's lots of embarrassments. Well, you know, from I know from the quarterly scare report. Right. Right. and for those uh, people out there that don't understand is that the, the FBI has a disciplinary arm. And what they do is they send out an email every quarter telling every employee who got in trouble, not using names, but what they got in trouble for and what their right. discipline was. What what did they suffer as a result of that? Well, we used to call it in the New York office, the quarterly scare report, because they wanted for that, you know, the quarter's almost up. Boom. You get the email, you open it up and you go, oh, my gosh. Right. And, uh, right. you know, they want to scare you straight again for another quarter, you know, and they do it over and over and, and over and it,
1: again. It's like the public pillory. It's the stockade where you put, uh, you know, all the dirty laundry only internally, because it's not for external, um. People who are familiar with our show will know that our our other friend, Stephen Friend, took five years of those quarterly scare reports, quarterly OPR reports. And he's been releasing them on Twitter one at a time. I don't know if you've seen him, but he has a hashtag, hashtag OPR files, because this is the only way the FBI is... You talk about dirty laundry. The only way it's going to get cleaned up is people take a look at it. And so he's exposing one at a time. He just got uh, grilled about it on Wednesday by the uh, the security division. And they were very unhappy with him airing that stuff. But then he went out and released the next one right the next day. Cause, well, cause know, that's what started, we're doing.
0: When they started releasing those on email, um, somebody had sent that out to like the New York times or the post or something. And it really shook up the FBI saying, Oh, Whoa. You know, so now it comes with a warning label. You're not right. to disseminate this, you know, it's against FBI policy, blah, blah, blah. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, um, yeah, I, I didn't like it at all. But, you know, getting back to, you know, the scaring of me from saying anything, um, yeah, please. I retired in January of 2022. And by April of 2022, you know, I was hoping to be have a, you know, a retirement check in the mail and, you know, something I can live off of, right? Right. Well, no, instead, I got a phone call from FBI headquarters saying that they lost my Retirement package. And I needed.
1: Why start. does that happen to everybody? Why? Like, why do all the and all the people I know think the way that you and I do? So yeah. I'm sure that's not unrelated. Uh, everybody that deals with the retirement office, either they're the most incompetent people in America or they are the most politically angry, like garbage that exists. Yeah.
0: Well, they, you they, think it's, it's. I think it's, it was done on purpose, you know, um, you know, from the higher ups, uh, you know, can I borrow Steve Bray's retirement? Uh, oh, dropped it in the shredder. Oh, sorry. You know, right. Uh, I think that's what happened. So, you know, we got it straightened out. That's the main thing. And
1: did they I, have to back pay you for six months or whatever it took oh, to get yeah, there? Yeah, they
0: did have to back, but I didn't get a check until, you know, September. So, you know, I got a small one in, in August and then I didn't actually start receiving regular pay until like, I think the beginning of September. So, right. But that's a long Do you time. If I, yeah, no, it's a long
1: time for a lot of people that are not, that are used to having a regular check. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want to ping an idea off you too, because this is very uh, related. We had a potential whistleblower come and talk to Phil and I, um, who worked with Timothy Tebow who is now famous for his political activism against President Trump. And some of the things that he could substantiate was the fact that the Bureau um, removed every unvaccinated you know, possible Trump supporter from the FBI election crimes uh, task force out of D.C. And the concern was, with this guy coming forward, he didn't want to speak out because he was afraid the FBI would pull his pension, even though the FBI doesn't administer the pension. It comes from, what, Office of Personnel Management, I imagine.
0: Yeah, but, somewhere somewhere down in Louisiana.
1: But. But we have you as an example that they are more than willing to mess with your money even after you leave, even after you've earned the retirement. It's your money. It's your money that you've paid into over time and that you've earned with your service. And there's a real fear among agents, even retired to right. come forward and speak, which is why so few people are going to do what you're doing right here.
0: Well, see, the thing is the FBI still had control of the file. They hadn't moved it along yet. So as long as they have control of it and they haven't moved it along, they could do whatever they want with it. And, and then right. it shows up they did. You know, I had to beg for my retirement creds. So I, I called every day. I didn't get my rec- my retirement and creds until September at 2, because I had to keep calling for them. Hey, listen, I need, you know, can I have my retirement credentials, you know? And, um, you know, the, the guy, you know, that was either incompetent at headquarters or was under orders not to send them out just wasn't mailing them. He wouldn't return my phone calls or anything. Um, so finally, I had a friend of a friend at their New York office make a phone call. And it's always three, that. Two, two days later, I got the, I got a package in the mail, uh, you know, at FedEx with my my retirement credentials. It's, it's so it's gross. Money. All the time that I put in, you know, and people have to understand this. As a law enforcement officer working you know, for the FBI, I missed dance recitals, my child's dance recitals. I missed birthdays, right? I missed anniversaries. I missed Christmas, Easter, every single major holiday you can imagine. I missed it not once, not twice, multiple times, 15, 16, 17 times. It goes yep. on and on in the performance of my duty, right? Somebody had to be out there working on Christmas or on Easter or 4th of July or whatever. Somebody had to do the work, you know? And generally it was me. I spent one Christmas, right? <laughs> <Yes>. I, <laughs> I, love, one I love I love that it
1: falls on people that care. That's what it falls yeah,
0: on. Well, that's what that's exactly right. It does. I spent one Christmas and one New Year's in a parking lot, right? In in Tampa Bay, right? Uh watching a terrorist suspect, you know, to make sure that he didn't, you know, um, you know, somebody that we arrested later on in January, but to make sure that you know he didn't do anything he wasn't supposed to be doing, we we're keeping a close eye on him,
1: right? Uh, I so, think Phil know, was on that was case, was by, by the way, the
0: arrest, but you know, that's where I spent that, you know, in 10 yeah. it's crazy, but because that was your duty, that. and what do I get for it? I don't get you know my retirement credentials, you know, they, they mess with me at the end just because I, you know. I'm pretty upset with the way the FBI has been handling their business. And the way they've been handling their business is thuggish and it needs to stop. We need to go back the way we are. The problem is, we've leaned so far the other way, the pendulum's having trouble coming back. And I don't know if it ever will unless Congress steps in, puts their foot down, we get somebody, you know, somebody tough in there. um, And, you know, basically says enough of this shit, Ray, you're out of there, you know, and uh, we're going to split these divisions up. We're going to send everybody out of DC, get them out of DC. And, you know, hopefully you get it. I think you mentioned that as well, um, about moving everybody out of DC, you know, as a matter of fact, I might've gotten that from you. (laughs) I don't don't know. I I don't want to take credit. No, well, I don't like to steal anybody else's credit either. So that's why I'm I'm throwing that out there.
1: (laughs) It's, it's reasonable. So it's funny that we're talking about, um, You know, I've made friends with Cash Patel since all this happened, which is bizarre, but Cash is a really good guy. He's been really good to me. And, uh, you know, he has a new book coming out that's called Government Gangsters. And a lot of it has to do with the malfeasance in the intelligence community of which the FBI is obviously a player. And you're talking about gangster behavior, which is, you know, threatening the family, mafiosa type stuff. The things that the New York field office is famous for taking down, like La Cosa Nostra, and really doing, you know, the God's work and trying to break up organized crime only to really fill that power vacuum with with the FBI doing it in so many ways. Um, The intimidation of journalists is one of those things. That's an awfully interesting piece. Uh, My buddy friend tells me he likes to use the words the punishment. I'm sorry, the process is the punishment. And in so many ways, what you're describing is that. And you experienced it even as a former, you know, as, as a retiree coming out of this agency with no, with no negative, you know, blemishes on your record and you're getting, you know, veiled threats or whatever you want to call that. Uh, You're getting, uh, you know, the feet dragging uh, incompetence of the government, which is just messing with your cash because nothing like putting you on your knees, not getting a paycheck. And if you hadn't been uh, somebody who was financially capable of, you know, maintaining solvency, you're begging at that point for six, eight months coming out without it. Like most people can't do that. I
0: I've done it. I know what it takes. It's not, it's not cool. It's, it's not, not fun. Easy. And if you've got kids and a wife and, you know, um, exactly. it's even harder. And if you live in the Northeast where everything costs a lot more, it's even harder than that, you know? Right. But, yeah.
1: $6 um, eggs for each egg. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think
0: It's, it's crazy, but you know, it's more the property taxes that, I mean, you know, people don't understand, you know, you know, I have my car insurance here. We've never had an accident, you know, we've never had a ticket, you know, we're clean all the way around. I, and I'm not a rich guy. I mean, I've got old cars. You know, one car has got 200,000 miles on it, 205,000. Another one's got 125. Because again, I'm not a rich guy. I'm just a guy that was working for the Bureau. And you don't get rich working for the Bureau as an agent. You only get rich working for the Bureau if you're in executive management. And that's, that's worth, worth noting. So, um, you know, with that being said, um, you know, I, you know, it was tough. It really was to, to go without a paycheck for that long and to try to survive, you know?
1: 100 when you um when you're looking at this and you're you're seeing the the decline of which i think you probably saw the entire skid um from 99 into 20 to to 2022 like that's a pretty perfect window to see all of it and i can tell that you're still agitated about it which i appreciate because i feel the same way um you know how do you how do you see it fixed we talked about moving people out of dc that's one of the things that you know you and i probably agree on that, that 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 swampish behavior. Uh, but New York is a, is a part of it. And uh, Boston and Baltimore, those offices are all part of that sludge. That entire Northeast corridor seems like it all feeds into this sort of uh, this apparatus. But, you know, there's corruption down in Miami. There's corruption in Chicago. A Los Angeles field office had, you know, the Dodger gate thing. I don't know if you were familiar with that, but they took all these tickets to the Dodgers game and that woman runs. She's an AD now. She was an SAC that was positively adjudicated as being guilty of the thing that they, they were accusing. And she's an AD now and she runs the relationship with the CIA. So you know can we gut it like what, what do you got to do to make it right
0: you only need to look at detroit right the detroit special agent in charge um who oversaw the whip the whitmer uh investigation into the individuals who were who were going to kidnap her i mean we are talking about again going back to bad agents look at this agent that they have hired here right he beat up his wife terribly right, right? um he was just a bad agent and then this SAC gets a big promotion as the assistant director of the Washington field office for Yeah, know. explain
1: to people how big a deal that is because I I, yeah. I don't think people can grasp that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there's as you move higher up the chain of command in the FBI, mm-hmm. there's less spots available. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of ass kissing going on and there's a there's a lot of, uh, you know, you know how it goes, you know. Sure. Everybody wants to be everybody's friend as you get higher up and you're hoping to snag one of those spots, right? And well, the top
1: of the pyramid is only like a half dozen to a dozen people. Um, you know, yeah, you've got absolutely. the director, the, the deputy director and below that, what is that, the EAD level or? I don't know. There's some little interim thing, but we're talking about like maybe six, eight people like they would all fit in this trailer too. the number of whistleblowers and people that are fighting this would yeah. would basically be able to stand toe to toe and line up one to one with the
0: people that are running the show. Right. Yeah. And I my my assessment is, is that that was a gift to the, the S.A.C. OK, now you're the you're, you're the assistant director. Now they got him. Right. He's the assistant director. Now you're going to do what we say. Uh, this is what we want you to do. Um, we want you to direct uh, this uh, investigation into this laptop and squash it, you know? We want you to direct this investigation into Donald Trump. We're going to hook you up with these people. We're going to send everybody down to Florida, and we're going to search Donald Trump's home. And I said that on the news as well. How strange is that, right? When When do we ever take agents from a certain field office, fly everybody down to one location, and those are the only agents that can search? we always send that information to the local field office and the local field office handles the search, right? Right. Um, Yeah. Cutting a,
1: they cut a lead. It's way cheaper. It's just as easy. The search still gets done the same way.
0: It still gets done the same way. Although it wouldn't have gotten done the same way. Right. Because now they have their own group of people, right? They handpick these individuals to go down to Donald Trump's home and search it. And I'm highly suspect of that. Right. What mm-hmm. were they doing there? What were they really looking for? And I those
1: see- were CI guys too, from what I can tell. Because the guy who signed the the uh, the search warrant uh, receipt, yeah, I used to sit next to him, and he's a nice enough guy, but he he would never push back against anything, you know, that he shouldn't be doing. No, he was, problem. and he was on the Russia Espionage Squad. I don't know if he still is, but he was.
0: He's probably promoted. He's probably an SAC by now. Well, I mean, he
1: might be. Yeah, it was that was a couple months ago, so it's game <laughs> on, right? Exactly. He definitely had to make. It, it's so sad that that's what we saw. We saw it with the kneelers in in um. You know, in D.C. that happened during 2020 that dropped down and gave their uh, their genuflection for BLM. Uh, I know your former, um, you know, office mate. Uh, I don't know how close you were to Jimmy Gags, but, you know, he ended up writing kind of an investigative piece where he went out and found out the exact same things that I told him, you know, that I told people happened. Which is always nice. It's always nice when someone comes in and validates your information. It's like, first of all, I knew it was true because I was in the room when they when they excused those people. But uh, you know that is so symptomatic of the rot that we're seeing and the yeah. sort of the political genuflection that you're seeing to a leftist ideology. And and it wasn't just DC. Obviously, we we see it all over the place now.
0: Yeah, and I I even you know I told I was on uh, Gorka's program one night, and I said I'm highly suspect that I, I'm wondering if they didn't kick everybody out of the Donald Trump house. And conduct that search but also send in a, a team to install you know cameras and microphones um we don't know what was in those warrants because they've never really been fully released right Correct. so um, yeah. they could have gotten a separate warrant uh you know here's the smoke and mirror right you got the smoke over here the search warrant but the real warrant was the warrant to install the electronic devices and nobody knows that you know so you know, because everybody's focused on the search warrant. Nobody's focused on the warrant, the separate warrant for the electronic devices. So, you know, we don't know if that's the case or not. I'm hoping that Donald Trump swept that place and he swept it good. You know, afterwards, he got a team in there to sweep, sweep his house because I wouldn't put it past the FBI today to do that. Isn't that shocking though? I mean, isn't
1: it shocking that that's the kind of conversation, like you and I worked there. We have friends that still are part of it or that have recently left that are respectable people that you would sit and have dinner with and and enjoy their company. And yet the organization overall is so suspect that we wouldn't even put it past them. And I agree with you. It's like, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, flaps and seals team going in there and doing their thing totally on the, on the, on the possibility level, whether it's real or not.
0: They would do it that way because they had no other way to gain access to his home, right?
1: Correct? Because the secret, secret Service take is there. Out. I
0: mean, exactly. So now they've got the search warrant. hey, you know, we're we're the FBI, everybody get out. We have this,
1: and all the people that conducted that were all people that live in a skiff all day long and basically fear for their paycheck and work non-operational stuff. Like they don't even have the same kind of le- like most of them don't have the same level of uh, aggressiveness to go after it and say this is wrong. I haven't heard anybody come out of the Washington field office and say, no more." This is what was going on. And I saw rampant abuse of all kinds of stuff, which is why I've reported it. It's funny. You start off reporting it internally and you realize it goes just to DOJ. DOJ does exactly what you think with it. They just go, well, that's not going to help us. So no, thank you. So the only thing you have is to go to the media. And, and you know, I'm grateful that guys who retired are willing to go do it. And God knows it needs to happen. But at this point, you know, how much, what do you think the, like the, the talk is always the good men and women of the FBI. You get the Hannity's out there, you know, it's yeah. 99% good. Uh, let's get a realistic estimation. What's the percentage of good versus people who will look the other way versus evil?
0: I think it's 50, 50. Okay. Uh, you think it's so 50, 50% yeah.
1: will look the other way and 50% are evil. You think it's that bad?
0: I think it's that bad. Yeah. I'll give you an example. When Comey okay. was dismissed by president Trump, right in the New York office, and we've got a lot of young agents in New York office. This is how the yes. New York office runs. We have typically 900 to 1,200 agents in the New York office, right? That's a lot for any Yes, office, a right? ton. It's the biggest office in, in the world. So when you take all those agents, we get a lot of agents fresh out of the academy. Why? Because... Um, I used to say that, you know, 90 percent of the FBI agents in New York spend 100 percent of their time trying to get out of New York and go to another. Office, yes. Right? Yes. They're, and
1: they're ruining the transfers for everybody else.
0: Yes. Yeah, because of the you know, we get special transfers for that. I've never cashed mine in. I always wanted to trade it to somebody that wanted it, you know. But for those that are listening to understand, um, we get points, uh, extra points for working in these hardship cities to, uh, you know, hopefully move to another city uh, when you accumulate enough points, right? Yeah. And generally it's over a period of years. I, I first got my, my first attempt at a transfer. Uh, I was notified 14 years after I'd been in New York city. So and you how- had a five-year offset.
1: So you were the equivalent of someone who had worked 19 years in the bureau. So just so people know that these transfers happen, um, on a seniority basis, that's pretty much the only thing they're called the office of preference move. And you only get one per car- uh, career, so you can only use it once. Unless you work in especially, you know, like San Juan, they help people out. And if, you, if you're if you in like Indian country and stuff, they'll do some benefits. But New York gets the special offset. It's either three or five years. But they had bumped you basically for, to either like the equivalent of a 17 or a 19-year agent at yeah. the tail end of your career yeah. to be able to transfer out. That's how long it took you to have an opportunity to even consider a move.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I declined it. But see, this is what the FBI does. <laughs> that's the, that's, that, that's brutal for people that are in the office that are <laughs> listening to that. Well, you know what is they They wait you out, the FBI, right? So yes. what am I supposed to do? My wife gets a job, right? She can't leave. My kids are rooted in the school system. They don't want to leave and go to another city. So, that's right. you know, you turn it down and you continue. For folks that don't understand it, in the New York office, I had a 60-mile drive into the office when I first got to New York, right? When I was in the academy I was making in 1999 my academy salary was $37,800. Yep. That's what I was making. When I finally yep. got to the New York office it bumped up to 45,000. So in right. 1999 in New York City I was making $45,000 a year. How am I supposed to afford to live on that, right? In the no New chance. York area. So Right. What, and what you're married,
1: right? I'm and married. you're and, and here's the other thing, like they they assumed, I always said this, they treat brand new FBI agents like they're a 21-year-old, you know, second lieutenant in the military that's ready to pick up and move and has no connections to anybody. But you had a family, you had a, uh, you know, previous experience in a career, you had friends that lived a place, you know, you have a spouse and all these other kind of, you know, real world things that cause, you know, that that's why we're not recruiting the way that we used to be able to. We're only going to recruit people that want to follow, you know, non-traditional you know they're not going to get be married. They're going to be you know thirty years old or twenty six years old and have no plan to be married. So they can be single and have a roommate, which is a national security liability, of course. But like, yeah. how else are you going to live in New York so, City on that? So
0: what we did was we needed to find a house. So um, uh, an agent in the bureau that I happened to know through a friend put me up, and I lived at their house right until I found a place to live. And we actually ended up um, renting an apartment ninety miles, or I'm sorry, um, thirty miles from the city. Until we could get our feet wet and figure out what the heck was going on. Because you know, we were from the South Jersey and it's a complete uh, um 180 from the New York yes. you know, from North Jersey, right? So um we uh started we we go out on the weekends and we just kept driving down the exits of the turnpike, uh one you know, x 80 78, the Garden State Parkway. These are all roads in New Jersey, until we could find a house or an area that we could afford to live in. When we finally did that, it was 60 miles from the bureau
1: <laughs> and then you've got to deal with the traffic in jersey and and, yeah. and new york city and the bridges getting in and all the other horrible things Absolutely. which is like so, it's probably like my know, least favorite place to drive
0: i was leaving the i left the house every day at four in the morning and uh generally i uh you know i was getting home at, you know especially earlier in my career five six o'clock at night and um when i was a supervisor in the office i was getting home even later than that you know sure and it really wears on you because the, the drive is just brutal back and forth.
1: Especially for someone who's, and an, you know, some of our audience probably has some long commutes and they're probably listening to this on their long commute. Yeah. And they know like, you know, you, you got to get your gym time in to maintain your body because just sitting in a car that long is enough to just degrade you. Um, I'm guessing I'm sorry, you experienced.
0: I'm sorry. I'm I'm, su- I'm sure there's some guy in Texas or Montana laughing at me like, you know, because, you know, he's his commute's like 400 miles. <laughs> so anybody's listening. I'm sorry about that, but. Um, if, you, if you've <laughs> never driven in New Jersey, let me give you an idea of what the New Jersey—it's a different—it's like. a different 60 miles. Yeah, the New Jersey Turnpike is 14 lanes up in North Jersey, right? It's 14 lanes, right? Seven and seven, right, on each side. And, you know, you have to drive 80 miles an hour bumper to bumper in order to to keep up. And if you don't, then um, you are literally left behind. People are flipping you off and they are running you off the road, cutting you off and everything else. So it is a brutal two-hand uh, intensive drive all the way up to, through North Jersey, man.
1: Yeah, full tactical ev- evasive yeah. driving the entire time, just practicing your your stuff. And then you I mean, did uh, you did surveillance operations there. Were you guys on uh, mounted surveillance, or were you doing
0: on foot, or a little mix? We did everything, so yeah. it, it didn't matter. Yeah, and I, I traveled all over the country on that surveillance uh, unit. It was um it was a covert uh, counterterrorism surveillance unit, and because we had such um, experience in it. And our team was so experienced, they they picked us and traveled. They basically flew us all over the country to work terrorism cases. Um, so York, I'll, I'll say
1: this about New York. So you guys call it SO for special operations. When yeah. I was at w, uh, WFO and the rest of the the, um, the country calls it SOG. And I always, you always knew a New York uh, guy or a guy who did you know surveillance in New York because they'd be like, yeah, when I was doing SO. And you go, it's SOG. There's a G in there. But yeah. the New York guys have their own thing. I will tell you this. The best... And the worst surveillance agents I ever met were both out of New York because New York has the possibility of planes, trains, automobiles, boats, ferries, whatever other weird things you guys have on foot, you know, mounted and dismounted. And then you also have some people that just hang out in the park and swing kettlebells, I think. So like depending on people, if they take their job seriously, New York has the potential of doing some of the most interesting surveillance work but also some of the worst, (laughs) like, I don't know why that was, but I saw guys that just phoned it in and did not care. And obviously you were part of the team that was motivated, which I don't think you could do anything else. I worked
0: on a task force with the NYPD, you know, and and we needed those guys because we'd get into some of these neighborhoods in New York city. And it it was so specific. You couldn't read any of the signs on the buildings because it was in a foreign language. I mean, that's how specific it was. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on where you were, I mean, you could be in, you know, um, and any type of area, you know, depending, it could be Spanish, it could be, um, you know, Arabic, I, you know, all of these, once you get deep, deep into these cities within New York, these little, these little cities within the city, you realize that it's, it's very ethnic and there's no English. It is specifically whatever that area is, that's the language they're speaking. That's the size. You couldn't tell what the words were. You didn't know if it was a you know, if it was a tailor, or if it was a you know a, um, a smoke shop, or whatever, you just impossible right. to tell.
1: How was how was SO looked at from the management side? Was it looked at as a as a cool gig to do? Was it looked at as something that we sent our you know that was not important, and we sent people we didn't care about? Well, and and did that change at all?
0: At the beginning, you know, especially in the nineties, the New York surveillance teams were all all SWAT agents. So you know, you had all of your SWAT agents on New York surveillance. You had a majority of your agents um, who were, uh, you know, moonlighting on the fugitive squads. They were also on the surveillance team because those surveillance teams at the time were actually out there making the arrests. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you were on somebody, you got the warrant, the case agent would say, yeah, go, go get them, you know, make the arrest. And they would bring them down, you know. Yeah. We had everything in New York City. Um, we had a huge warehouse where we had 18 wheelers, we had buses, we had little buses, we had taxi cabs, you name it, any type of vehicle we needed. Uh, there was even a Lamborghini in there that they had seized from a drug trade, you know, and if you needed it, um, you know, one time uh, there was a, a um, you know, they were, we were doing a job and we were using a taxi cab. You're supposed to keep, the doors are supposed to lock automatically, you know, the back doors don't open and uh, somebody jumped in and was like, "Hey, can we go?" <laughs> it's like, well, oh, buddy, we're we're closed. Uh, we're not I'm not working. I'm not on duty. And then it get in an argument because in New York, you have to argue before you get out, you know,
1: yeah, you can't just accept like, hey, this person's not working. That's exactly, not New York.
0: Exactly. So those are the things that happened. But you know, um you know, in other areas, you know we used the eighteen wheeler to um a guy planted a a, a car bomb. It was inert because we knew it was inert. And then he took off in another car and tried to get out, but we had an 18-wheeler in front of him make a wide turn. And yeah, then just block it. You block it. And then the SWAT team jumped out and grabbed him and made the arrest.
1: I may have seen that video. Um, I, there's, okay. always, there's always aerial sometimes on those things that are fun to see.
0: Getting to your question, though, as time went on, surveillance just became a babysitting job um, mm-hmm. where upper management had turned into a, a society of do-nothings. They didn't want to do anything that was going to jeopardize their career. So they didn't want any black marks. So they didn't want their agents doing anything that was going to get them in trouble that was going to prevent them from getting to the next level.
1: Yep. Phil is nodding his head along with that. Phil also, I think he also worked that case down in Tampa. Number one and uh, number two, he was doing surveillance that both between Washington Field and headquarters at the same time. Um, I I find that fascinating that the culture shift it goes along with that risk averse behavior, which is kind of a it's kind of antithetical to law enforcement. Like I think we all signed up to kind of put it on the line. Yeah. And and then I and, and I was looking at your resume and, and and you left you left SO at some point. Uh, and it sounds like that
0: may have been the reason. Is that is that about right? Oh, absolutely. We were just sitting in the car. They wouldn't let us move. They wouldn't let us do anything. I said, "Well, I didn't sign up for this. I'm going back right. in the office." And guys are like, "Dude, you're crazy. Why do you want to go back?" And I said, "Because that's not who I am. I want to I want to do some work and I want to get this and you know, do do a job." So you know, I did such a great job on surveillance. Um, my supervisor, at times, like, dude, he goes, "Whatever squad you want, you got it." So, um, you know, I told him I wanted to work bank fraud, um, something a little more nine to five, less weekend work. Cause I, you know, my kids were older now and that sort of thing. And, yeah. uh, I get to the bank squad and, and here we are traveling all over the country again and all over the world because I didn't realize that, um, we, you know, we're the financial capital of the world and all of that's these right. warrants come through New York and we had warrants for people all over the world. And as soon as somebody came up, well, you know, on the radar, we had to go out and get them. So
1: yeah, out of the, <laughs> out of the frying pan, right straight York? into the fire.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's,
1: that's classic stuff. So I got in, um, and I didn't know I was in hot water. I thought I was just saying things that were true. And, and it sounds like you and I have that same agreement that, that, uh, special operations group, the surveillance teams, um, have been a depository for some of the broken toys the do not the people that don't want to continue to work. That was my experience when I got there, I actually worked against that culture and and um, my team as I left was, you know, featured on the front of the bunet saying, you know, these guys are doing what we called same thing that you were talking about, just grabbing bad guys, but they have a name for it. Now it's tactical surveillance interdiction. So you're doing, you know, uh, surveillance to arrest operations, which is what surveillance should do. It's really good at it. It's like, we know when they're vulnerable, we know when it's safe, we can make a good, we, we know how they walk. We know what they're carrying, all that stuff. Yeah. And um, and so I got into I guess hot water with my former supervisor who also uh, occasionally pens a piece for town hall and he was really mad that I didn't uh you know say worshipful things about the way that operation went down and that that it wasn't just like the highest speed work that it was but you've seen high speed I've seen what high speed looks like I've seen what not high speed looks like and and it wasn't high speed so I don't know there's a you know talk about disgracing the family but It's so funny that even someone who I had a pretty good working relationship with, and I didn't say anything bad about the guy, but he took it so personally that he's gone out and called me a clown show and he's written pieces. He doesn't name me, but I know who he's talking about. And it's just so funny that he's so mad about it. It's like, why do we not call a spade a spade in the Bureau?
0: Yeah, he just needs to let it go and, and move on, you know? Um, How how many how many
1: guys did you see that like their reputation is so tied up with their bureau existence that they can't be anything else? You know what I mean? You've seen those guys.
0: I could I could give you a list of names right now. It's that bad. You know, And some of them are still there. Um, Right. Yeah. It's 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 kind of weird. You know, the FBI is a weird group, you know, and for for folks out there that don't understand what the FBI is like. um, When I was a police officer. Right. I had to take an eight hour psychological exam. Right. With a psychiatrist. Right. To make sure that i was fit for the street to carry a gun and there was multiple tests i took and to make sure i wasn't schizophrenic or you know pathological i mean there's all kinds of things they were going through. And then you get to this interview with them you know and um you, know, you talk to the psychologist and they say they want you to make you have to draw a picture of your family and stuff and like it's so crazy like they denote all the things out of what how you drew your family and You know, whether they're holding hands and that sort of thing, everything means something, right?
1: Right. Why is your dad's head so big?
0: Yeah, it's just the craziest (laughs) thing, right? But, um, you know, the the reason why it's so long is they want to see if you don't go crazy while you're actually doing the test, you know? This is important, right? When I got to the FBI and I said, hey, when do I take the psychological test? They went, what psychological test? Hmm. And, you know, we're hiring thousands of people and giving them, you know, literally AR-15s and handguns and all, sending them out on the street. and we don't know if they're crazy or not and you look around your office i look around my office and i go that guy's crazy he doesn't belong on the street you know and the, right you know the you know upper fbi management thinks that they can rein these people in but they can't after 9 11 we started getting this new group of people in i'm sitting at my desk one day on in, in foreign counterintelligence, and security comes down and they want us all to stand up move away from our desk and they just start searching our desks like crazy I say, what the heck's going on? We didn't know what was going on, right? And um, uh, they, they then they left, right? And that was it. They didn't tell us what was going on. But well, later we find out that-
1: You're always going to find out.
0: Yeah, of course we're always going to find out. <laughs> the, the guy that, that was sitting next to me on another squad, right? A brand new agent. Um, he used to work within that our building for another agency, right? So he left that agency, became an FBI agent, went through the process and he went back to New York. Well, apparently he was up in Midtown, and he shoplift, shoplifted a bottle of Pepto-Bismol from, from a Dwayne Reed store, which is a you know basically a-, you it's know, like a
1: Yeah, it's like a CVS. Store.
0: Yeah, exactly. And um, he got chased out by security. <laughs> what in the world? So they call the police, and now the NYPD is chasing this guy, right?
1: Looking for his Pepto.
0: They, well, the, ch- the police tackle him to the ground. They place him under <laughs> arrest. They get the videotape from the security showing him shoplifting right. and then the FBI shows up and they go, oh, we've got this guy. We'll take care of this. You know, he's our guy and all. And if you got the videotape, we'll take that, too. So they go down, they bring him back to the office and they they put the videotape on the supervisor's desk. And uh, this guy goes up to the 28th floor at the time we were on the 25th floor and uh, he sits in with the SAC and of, of administration. And now he's got to explain himself, right? Well, he excuses himself, says, I got to use the bathroom. Well, he never went to the bathroom. He went back to the 25th floor, stole the tape off of the, um, the, the desk <laughs> of the supervisor, left the building, went over to the old office he used to work in, This, you know, gave the tape to somebody. They still don't know who it is. And then ca- he came back and went to the SAC like nothing happened. Nobody even asked Whoa. why it took him so long to go to the bathroom. <laughs> right.
1: That's amazing.
0: You know, no question. So, um, that was what the I'm not,
1: was. I'm not mad at that guy for, for the record. Like if you're going to be jammed up, you might as well try to get out of it. Like at that point, like well, you're you know, in that it, world,
0: it, it comes down to quality agent, right? This right. Is a quality, not a quality person. He's stealing, right? Number one, he's yes. stealing. And then number two. Now he's stealing from his own, to, to, you know, the FBI, you know, he's not a top rate agent. He has no business being there. And yet he got in and right. you know, I'm not going to tell you why he got in. You guys can all, you know, draw your own conclusions, but um, Phil's
1: rolling his eyes with the diversity higher look on his face, but you know,
0: uh, it's just the craziest thing, but he wasn't a good agent and we've got really good agents in the FBI of right. races and all colors, all top notch people, right? all top-notch people, just the, the best of the best, right? And then you have this one, I don't like to cuss on, on TV, but you got this one scumbag, right? Who ruins it for everybody, you know? Right. And and it's that just, person's
1: out there just crapping on the, like on the reputation, selling yes, the badge. Exactly. But now we got a lot of those people.
0: Now we got a, a lot of those people in. Uh, I'll give yeah. you another example. So now I'm the supervisor, the acting supervisor of the operations division, right? Or I'm mm-hmm. sorry, the, the, um, yeah, the operations squad. And- um, sure. We get a rotation of new agents uh, weekly, monthly, whatever. And so as they come in, I bring them into the office and I say, "Well, you know, welcome to the squad, you know." And I let them know. I bring them on a tour, show them where everything is, where their desk's going to be, and I sit them down at my desk and I ask them, "Why do you want to be an FBI agent?" And you get a lot of different stories, but generally they're all the same. I want to fight crime, you know, i you know terrorism, whatever. But I had one uh, woman from San Francisco, from the San Francisco area, who was born and raised in the San Francisco area. Uh, who told me that she be, wanted to become an FBI agent because she wanted to put cops in jail. That was her exact words. I want to put Whoa. cops in jail. Well, I, well, that's the wrong answer for me because we've got a lot of police officers working in the New York office. and right. I said, look, you might not want to repeat that, especially around the elevator bank, because you might be standing next to a state cop or an NYPD officer or whatever, you know?
1: Or a former cop FBI
0: agent. Well, that's just it, right? Just just
1: (laughs) no ability to read people.
0: But this is the mentality of the agent that we're getting now that are in their their early 20s and their mid-20s. This is what these agents, they've been indoctrinated all of their lives. And now they're becoming FBI agents, right? Um, We had a big hiring um, blitz Uh, just before I left. And I, you know, my office received 30 new individuals, all support individuals. And every every single one of those individuals that they hired was a left-leaning individual. They frequently talked about how much they hated Donald Trump and how they were voting for for Joe Biden and, you know, what, how great the Democratic Party is. All things under the Hatch Act you're not allowed to do, but yet they were doing it anyway. Now, if I had brought that to my supervisor, he would have laughed in my face. Correct. (laughs) You
1: know, hey, t- t- tell people what the Hatch Act is just for, you know, the way that we understand that it works, because it's a little bit complicated. But the straightforward enforcement of it is, is something I think we all kind of agree on.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. The Hatch Act came about in the, 19- the late 1930s if, for people that don't know their history. Right. And the reason why they enacted the Hatch Act was because the Democratic Party was using the FBI and other federal agencies in their favor to get uh, individuals elected. Right. So, you know, the Republicans crawled foul and they finally got this 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 Hatch Act passed to prevent that from happening. So what the Hatch Act does is it prevents any federal employee from discussing politics or participating in politics or doing anything related to politics in or outside of the office. Right. So you can't go home. I mean, you can support somebody by putting a sign in your yard at home and you can do that, but you can't actively go out and tell you you can't hold. Uh, a school uh, board position. You can't hold state offices or anything like that. You certainly can't assist people to run for Congress. Right. These are all no no's under the Hatch Act. And you can't tell people that you're an FBI agent and then say, hey, I'm a Republican. That's also a no no. You're supposed Right. To not let anybody know what your politics are. So and maybe you
1: shouldn't the Act, be like liking. Yeah. Yeah. Liking posts that, uh, when it says on your LinkedIn, that you're an FBI agent, and then also you hate Donald Trump and that you'd like him to, you know, get taken down on a Washington post thing. I want to, um, and also you talk about the leftist you brought in, I actually had an OST, a secretarial position who had a gender studies degree. You'd think it was a joke, but she did. And it was a legitimate thing. And she wouldn't take any orders from anybody. It's like, I just need you to put all these, I got a bunch of stuff that came in from a subpoena and I need you to scan them into my file. That's her job. It's literally in her job description. It's 500 or 800 pages. Of bank records Please scan them in You know The file name is on the top If you have any trouble with it Let me know And she said I'm not going to do it You know I, I refuse to be doing that And she went to the supervisor And the supervisor said You don't get to tell her What to do It's like hmm. What the hell's her purpose then Her That's literally her job um, She ended up getting promoted As you would expect And so she was the, the special agent In charge of admins you know, executive assistant or whatever. And she got promoted for that with no experience. I want to pivot from that because that's all awful stuff. And it just makes me angry. Uh, this is just makes me laugh. You were a firearms instructor for 17 years of your what, 22 years, 23 years with Bureau. Yeah, that's correct. Talk to me about firearms proficiency in the FBI. Uh, are you a gun guy? Do you own you know personal weapons? You care about Thank shooting you. them? I think that's. I thought I was joining a gun club when I got into the FBI. That's what my 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 uh, my uncle told me. He's a retired GS fifteen, and he was like, you know, the FBI is a big gun club. I love guns. I love having them. I love being safe with them. I love training people. Yeah. You know, you have to have a little bit of a passion to do the a firearms instructor gig. Tell me if you saw any changes. What they look like. What's the competency of the federal agents? You know, what does it run, and and where are the percentages of like really good to terrifying?
0: Well, you know it. it <laughs> You have a a broad spectrum of agents when it comes to handguns right you have those that are terrified to use them they're terrified to work with them and they really would prefer not to shoot them you know they want to just go in the office and fight crime from their desk all the way to the the ex-military ex-police who want to get out there and shoot every day and you can't get them off the range even after you close it you know so you have this broad spectrum of agents Um, but you also have this broad spectrum of agents who can't shoot, right? So you have agents that are spot on, 100%, every time, never miss. And then you have agents that look like they shot their target with a shotgun, even though they're using a handgun. And, (laughs) you know, and no matter how many times you you you, as an instructor, you it, instruct with them, and you spend hours with them, and you get them right again, they come back and they shoot the same way, and and that's scary because that person should not have a gun, and right. you know, they don't want us, they don't want us to pass fail agents, they just want us to to pass them at time and time again, and I've yeah. had agents where I've had to go back to the lead instructor and say, that guy's not coming off the line until he learns how to shoot that gun. And if we, if it takes all day, because uh, you know um, he's, he's been in 10 years, he's a 10 year agent. He obviously passed the um, Quantico, you know, and he's on, on the street for 10 years and he still can't shoot his weapon. And that's a problem for me. Well, we, as an FBI agent and, and as FBI, as a bureau, we don't have an avenue for those individuals, right? Right. It's either pass or fail. They want everybody to pass. So right. there's no fail in the FBI when it comes to firearms, right? They want everybody to move through. At least- Does, that's that, what make you, does that make you far. nervous? Sure. It makes me nervous. I'll tell you why, you know. Um, you know, if, if you're not spot on in a good shot, you know, there's a possibility that you're going to miss. And where does that, you know, you got to know your backstop where's that you know where is that bullet going if it misses you know that's a big problem especially um, in new york yeah absolutely absolutely it is you know but you know look it's also local police departments we trained uh, we trained all of the local swat teams through the new york office and all of the local sniper teams and you know i don't blame the local police departments you know they got guys coming in they're not allowed to shoot or practice as much because of the cost of the of the ammunition so right. You know, you get these guys in and we bring them, you know, we have a huge budget, so we bring in a ton of ammunition. And, uh, you know, from the time they start, their proficiency, you know, isn't as good as the, when they leave from us. And they go, wow, I didn't realize I was that bad, but now I'm, I'm Right. Good. And we tell them, look, you need to continue that on your own. You can't, even though your agency isn't allowing you to shoot as much, you know as well as I do that it's it, – Shooting is a diminished uh, action, so if you don't keep doing it and you don't keep shooting your weapon, your your percentages are going to go down. So in order to keep that up, we you know we recommend to people to go find a gun club and go on the weekend and shoot every weekend. You know, you know yep. it's going to cost you more money, but in the end, you're going to be better for it. Do you feel like you would have had
1: liability if you passed some of these like terrible shots through and they had gotten into a bad shoot? Would they I mean, they would come to you because you're the last guy that signed off on the records. But do you feel yeah. like that was a, an issue for you as all?
0: It's I, I never thought about head. it until just now. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's always in the back of my head. But um, generally in the New York office, you don't want to get in a shootout anywhere. Right. Sure. Uh, there's just too many people on the street. You don't yes. want to be firing your weapon. So unless it's absolutely necessary to fire your weapon, you want to keep that weapons holstered as long as you can. If you were in a city setting, um, sure. You know, if you were in, you know, you know on an arrest and you're in somebody's home and, and things go down yeah, you know, you want to, you know, take care of business, but if you're on the street and you've got a subject you're following, you know, you certainly don't want to, if he hasn't produced a gun, you certainly don't want to draw down on him and say, Hey, FBI, like they do in the movies. You know, you're under arrest. And then this guy pulls out a gun and starts shooting because, right. you know, he's not going to be a good shot. And there's too many innocent people around.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's. I mean, there's so many more considerations as a law enforcement officer than you have if you're the bad guy. And it's not like TV where you, you throw five bangs out there. Those four bangs hit somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and one of them, you know, one of them hit a window and scared the crap out of the lady that lives there. So um, I I told Phil this, let's see if, what you think. <laughs> and this may have been, this may have been hyperbole, but I told Phil this uh, after we met um at one point when i when i came to trust him as a human being i said at this point i just want to let you know you're one of the few people in this office that if you drew your gun i would turn my back and look and cover your six but most people that draw their weapon i would just watch them because fbi agents with their gun out of their holster scare the crap out of me because there's just such a mixed bag of skill sets and capabilities i just assume the worst how do you how do you think about something like that is that does that register with your experience a little bit?
0: It does, yeah. And as you know, as I know, we also had agents in the FBI in New York office who were so grossly overweight, they couldn't shoot from the prone position, you know?
1: Okay, that's that's not something I saw a ton of, but I'm, I I have seen a little bit of. Tell me more about fitness standards and how we decided to avoid them.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the New York office, it wasn't until Joe Demris took over the New York office that we finally got a gym, and that was in 2009. We never had a gym in the New York office. And as you know, Gym memberships in New York City are 75, 80 bucks a month. And yeah. back then, it's probably even higher now. Um, so we finally got a gym and they put some crappy equipment in there and they called it the New York office gym. And, uh, you know, half the treadmills were broken, half the equipment was broken. And I'm sitting there going, man, you know, it seems like, uh, federal inmates have better gyms than the new york fbi does. i'm, I'm
1: yeah. certain they do yeah people yeah. would always go oh is the the gym must be incredible it's like no you should see the gym at headquarters that nobody uses that's really nice yeah uh, <laughs> the gym at washington field looks like a freaking prison
0: well it's you know down i was basement. working out the gym in the washington in, in uh, washington uh, dc at headquarters a lot of that equipment in that gym was bought in the 70s
1: <laughs> well they've redone it yeah this so they've really redone 70s. it since you left
0: this was 2007, and it was still the same way. So I don't know. What yeah, yeah. It now, but- no,
1: now it's now it's a rooftop. Like they've taken that that open kind of above the uh, the courtyard. Yeah. And there's a rooftop sprint track, and there's 50 pull-up bars, like a CrossFit gym, and there's all these like you know there's a deadlift platform out there with some weights on it and cattle bells everywhere. I mean, it's wild. You go out there and you're like, man, this feels like a pro training complex. And you're looking out over DC, and yeah. uh, and when you go there, it, my buddies would jog over there sometimes with me. So we we literally leave our squad bay, jog over do some PT, jog back, take a shower, and then go to work. And, um, and we were the only people that were using it. So I don't know how much use it gets. Of course it's at Hoover where they don't use it, not where the agents are actually working.
0: Yeah. You and know. you know, your viewers have to understand that FBI agents have to stay fit. If you ever chased anybody right in wingtip shoes and a business suit, it's, it's twice as hard as somebody that's in a track suit, man. So you know, you have to stay in shape and it's not easy to run in shoes in New York City that, you know, are shined up and ready to go, you know? Um,
1: That's classic. How many times, how, Let me just out of curiosity, because I didn't see a lot of people chasing anybody, but I'm sure it happens. Yeah. How many How many foot chases did you do and were they well, when you were on SO or were they on your other squads?
0: Yeah, it was more on SO. So we, we, I think I may have been involved in three on SO. So I, I was always dressed down in those situations. Right. You know, um, I was, uh, you know, I was hauling butt on nine eleven, uh, but you know, for that sure. was a different circumstance. I did more foot, more foot chases as a police officer than anywhere. Sure. No.
1: Yeah, it, and it's one of those things. And and I and I'm not I'm kind of I think people should be fit because that's just you're on the government dime, you have a government healthcare, you should be maintaining your own sort of you know, life standards because it's good for your mind, it's good for your for your body. But I'm also of a mind that if there's no application, like I never understood the 300 meter sprint that we do for our fit test. Like, I don't know if any FBI has ever done a 300 meter sprint. Uh, and you might've done it like trying to get through a turnstile or something, following yeah. somebody on a you know subject that that makes more sense. Cause I've done hundred miles an hour in my car as well. And there's not a lot of times you would do that as a, as a bureau agent, unless you're chasing down somebody and you're about to lose a terrorist or whatever. But uh, yeah, if it doesn't apply to the job, why the heck are we doing it? Like basic cardiovascular fitness makes sense to me, but I don't know, I don't know if it's a job requirement and then it's the same thing with the gun. It's like so many people like CIA agents, uh, you know, white collar people, a lot of yeah. times they probably could do without. We could hire unarmed investigators. There's plenty of people that would be psyched about that gig. Call them 1810s, you know, yeah. special investigators that go into that. I mean, there is an 1810 position and other yeah. agencies do it. I've always wondered why the bureau didn't just break down and say, "Look, you can be a special agent armed, special agent not armed" yeah. because then you get the same cool title, which is what half these people are after, I think.
0: I think so too. You're absolutely right. Um, it's funny somebody on Twitter yesterday uh, somebody wrote uh, I don't know if it was negative, but it was you know a little condescending he said that uh, I look too young, right to be a retired agent and that you know we need to look at the federal retirement pension system and it was must have been the, it must have been the, the, the union that pushed me through and that's sort our of thing. So I just responded back, look dude, number one, you know I did my time honorably for 32 years as a law enforcement officer. Number two, mm-hmm. the FBI doesn't have a union to protect us, you know? No. And number three, dude, don't bang, don't gang up on me because I got good genes, right? I eat right, you know, I work out and I got great right. hair, you know?
1: <laughs> That's it. It's it's done right. It's If you got it, you flaunt it. And here's the thing, um, that is not necessarily common. Like we see plenty of people come out of the bureau that look like they got spit up uh, through the meat grinder. So, yes. and it's because they didn't take care of themselves.
0: They don't right? take care of themselves. That's right. And you know, I don't know what it, what it is. You know, you know. But look, for for those that don't understand the life of a law enforcement officer, it's a hard life, man. And it's one of the reasons why you know officers are permitted to to retire at twenty or twenty five years because twenty or twenty five years really feels like fifty or sixty years to the to our bodies, man.
1: Yeah. So between carrying gear, I mean, people don't understand if you don't carry a gun every day, you just don't know that carrying an extra, you know, pound and a half or something on, on both sides of your hip. And, and that's just, if we're going low visibility, if you, you know, the patrol officers guys are, are really just crushing their backs and their, and their, their, uh, their hips and their, and their legs, and they're doing foot chases with extra you know, weight on at all times. And if you don't maintain yourself and and the sad thing is, is that most people are not given a lot of time to do that. And even if you are, there's still demands on the, like there's office demands, there's work demands that never really open up. And, I'm not, you know, complaining because I don't think you would have chosen a different
0: life if you had a choice, would you? No, I had so much fun. First of all, I had more fun as a police officer. I mean, it was just it was great, you know, but then I was doing that in my my 20s. So, you know, it was great. But I'm glad I transitioned into the FBI in my 30s and 40s because it, it would have been a lot harder to be a police officer in my 40s than you know, in my twenties, and right, I'm sure there's a lot of construction workers out there listening to me going, "And this guy's a lot of bullshit, shit." But um, there I go, and cursing. But um, you're right. The bottom line is, is that you know you're, you're going through all these steps, working a midnight shift, then you're working a day shift, and then you get pulled into a you know a 24-hour shift, and you're working, and then you got to go back to the office and type up all of these reports like a secretary, right? There's nobody that's going to type them up for you. You've got to do all right. this yourself, and, and then you're, you're legally liable for what you said. Exactly. And you've got to pull it all together in a document that doesn't have any mistakes. And then you you send it off and then your your supervisor rejects it for some reason. You bring it back, you change it, and then you go. And then you know, and then the next day, uh, not for that case, but for the 20 cases that you might have to be working, you get pulled into court, and then you've got to explain something that you haven't seen in like literally six months because you were waiting for it to be adjudicated, and it right. goes on and on. And all of this stuff is going through your mind and everything else, and a lot of people don't understand that that's, you know, you've got to be very organized to pull all of that together as an FBI agent and pull it off.
1: Truly. And, and and in no way would we, I think you would not choose anything different. And, you know, the fun thing is, is the FBI agents that work hard, which is probably about 20%, maybe 25% of the Bureau is working pretty good. Yeah. I feel like 80, 75% of people are coasting or in management positions that don't actually require them to do that work. So well, everybody yeah. in the Bureau is building their, their reputation on the 20% that are busting their ass yeah. that that's, you know, 80, 20 rules. Is that about right. You think?
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah. I think that, so. it, sadly
1: yeah. enough. I mean, cause we've got so many people that are working between supervisory things that are administrative that are working programs that have no functional output, um, you know, they're working kind of the job that shows up, but they're they're phoning it in and they don't have any kind of investment in it. And then you've got these the real case agents out there that are that are legitimately doing all the work for everybody. They're carrying thirty-six thousand people's workload, you know, on on the backs of whatever it is. What what, what does that come about? Five or six thousand people are probably doing it.
0: Yeah. It's It's kind of
1: sad, but probably true. I think in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. But then, you know, and then of those people that are doing the work, you got management hammering down, you know, not them to actually complete their jobs, you know, or, or do their jobs. I mean, there was a time when, um, you know, working counterintelligence, I couldn't even go out and interview with somebody unless I got the special agent in charge permission. I had the same situation. Right. Yes. So, I mean, these are the things that, these are the crazy rules that we're dealing with and you know, then you, you have to bring in the State Department and then you have to bring in the CIA and everybody has oh, to be in yeah. line and you, everybody knows know what's going on and all before you can even get your foot out the door to go do something. It's kind of crazy. That's why I love the freedom of working criminal cases, because I didn't have to worry about all of that. We we wanted to interview somebody. Boom, we were out the door and, and, and we were interviewing them, you know, that's right. trying to get the information. And, you know, I said this last night, you know, we've got FBI agents to try to work cases from behind their desk and it's almost impossible. You don't know what's going on. You know, it, there's very few supervisors. They come in and they're like, oh, where's this guy? Where's this guy? Where's this guy? Well, they're out right. there interviewing people. They're out there working and they don't want to see that. They want them inside office where they can control them and take, you know, make sure that they're, they're doing their job as, as general secretaries. But
1: that, that's it. My my buddy used to say this. Tell me this. He he used to say if somebody is the subject of your investigation, but you've never seen them, are they really the subject of your investigation? Yeah. I I always thought that was like how many how many cases would fall apart if that if you that was the the criteria. Yeah yeah. How many yeah. people have never physically seen the subject they're investigating in their that's life? so
0: Funny. I, I got on the bank fraud squad, and um, we I just come off the the covert surveillance team, and um, uh, one of the guys says, "Hey Steve, he says, can you come out with me? I've been trying to get pictures of this guy." for the court for this case that we got coming up. And uh, we want to, want to prove that he's in this house. Can you come out and help me on a surveillance and maybe we could snap some pictures? And uh, so I said, yeah, we'll come up. I'll take the eye first. The eye is, you know, where we, the first person where you get a position where you can watch and make sure you can see the person, that sort of thing. And um, so I, I pull up and uh, the other guy that I'm working with, the other agent I work with, he said, hey, I just pulled up, I'm on such and such street, just so you know, I, said, I got the pictures, let's go. <laughs> He goes, how did you do that? I said, I'm an experienced uh, covert surveillance agent, man. Let's That's get, right. I'm a professional. This is what I did. So he kept bugging me. How did you get that? How did you get How did you get that? Well, um, you know, I saw the postal guy coming down the road and I said, hey, can you knock on the door for me and, uh, you know, just stand back a little bit and, and bring him out to get the mail. And he did that. And, uh, you know, it worked out for me. And I was able to Easy. get the pictures. Easy peasy, man.
1: It's it's so funny that um, when you spend all your time in an office, you don't actually have the the wherewithal, like how do people actually interact? How do people really move? How do people, you know, talk? And so I would always tell new agents coming out I was like the first, you know, they, I think they teach this at the academy, but they do a terrible job. They actually teach the opposite lesson. The, the lesson is supposed to be, don't be weird. Don't do weird things. Don't say weird things. Don't say FBI weird things that don't make any damn sense to anybody. You know, you'd have a kid come out and he, I'd, I'd say, let's just do a... You know, a role play of an interview before we go out and do this interview, because I don't know how you talk. And I, I'd i like to know before we go out there and I go sign on whatever your work is. It's like, knock, knock. It's like, how are you doing? What can I do for you? And he was like, hey, you know, I'm so and so from the FBI. It's like, congratulations. I would always do like kind of like semi hostile. So it's like, congratulations, you must be really proud. And they go, um, yeah so anyway i was like just shake it off just keep going like you got to just get to, like why are you here why are you on my doorstep and he would go you know your name came across my desk i must have heard 10 or 15 people say this i don't know if they're teaching at the academy wow. and i'd be like your name came across my desk what do you have like a conveyor belt or something with like little name tags and they would go uh, like a what and they go is it like a ticker like in new york where they have like the stock market is like names just come across and you just pick one why are you at my door you know And yeah. they'd be like uh, i don't know it's like i'm here to ask you some questions do you have a moment How about that? How about just be a regular person? Yeah. yeah. Normal people knock on the door and they have to deal with people all the time. You've never done that because you're an FBI agent who just came out of the university and they just have no sense. And it's just as easy. It's like, hey, how about a postal carrier? How about you set off a car alarm? You know, you want to get a picture of somebody? Let's just make them come out. Like, I don't have all day. Let's do something useful. Let's just make noise. Right. It doesn't matter. Lay on your horn and then yell at somebody that's not there because people look out the window, snap, snap, snap. Like your other guy gets it, you know, set up a ruse of whatever it may be. There's a million things you can do.
0: Yeah. And I, I love mean, that your buddy was it, with us. We used to blow the horn uh, just to get somebody to turn around because usually you blow a horn, somebody turns around. But we always yes. had a rule. You can blow it once, but you can't blow it twice because if you blow that's it right. twice, then you're going to blow your cover. That's so, right.
1: Yeah. yeah. you got to be. And then also the person who's taking the picture is not the person blowing the
0: horn. No. And it's just amazing, though. But every every single person always turns around to see who's blowing the horn. Even yeah, because well, with all the horns yeah, going off, <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> like, who is it? Hey, who is this guy? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, I appreciate what you've been going out there and doing. I appreciate that you've been kind of uh, a vocal voice that saying, you know, we we didn't um, coordinate our message, but I think a lot of the messages that you and I have been sharing with you know vastly different experiences and and vastly a different amounts of time at the FBI, we saw the same problems. And I think that's, what's been the 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 thread that's kind of woven people like you and me and Steve friend and some of the whistleblowers that are coming out and retired guys. Um, where can people, you know, find your message? Where can they, uh, where can they follow you? Where can they, you know, kind of co-sign on what Steve gray is about?
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. So um on Twitter. Uh, I have it up there uh, underneath. The... We got
1: to, we got to fix your Twitter on there. I just looked it's wrong. It is at Stephen
0: gray. Is, is it Steven Twitter? gray? And then it's, my, the my, number Twitter, four. my Twitter is at Steve Gray Nj4. NJ4. Right. So um I'm at I'm at Steve Gray Nj4 on Truth Social, um, where I have um 75, uh, 7, plus followers. I'm at Steve Gray, S-T-E-V-G-R-A-Y. And uh on getter, I'm at Steve Gray N J.
1: Okay. And what sort of things are you acting like? I know you're activists at, you know, about fixing the bureau, you're out there doing, you know, media hits, you know, what is what is the message that you're trying to convey in kind of a short soundbite and then, you know, and will people see you soon on anything? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, um, well, you know, my message is very simple. Um, uh, you know, I talk about the FBI religiously and the things that are going on in the bureau nationwide as they come up. And, uh, you know, I also dabble in, uh, you know, certain different politics, or I also dabbled in, you know, whatever uh, uh, the um, the topic of the day is that, that, that kind of strikes my mind, you know, because there's a world of things going on here. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I have a daughter. She's in high school. She goes into the bathroom the other day and there's a dude in there. Right. Who's wearing he's wearing a girl's top, but dude pants and he's calling himself a girl. And I'm like, he's not a girl. He's a dude. And he doesn't belong in the girl's bathroom. So I call Clearly. the school and the school tells me, hey. It's state law. He's allowed to do it. There's nothing we can do about it. So I had to tell my daughter: next time you see a dude in the bathroom, turn around and walk out. Go use another bathroom. Which that's right. I mean that that's the society that we're living in today. Um, You know, I I saw something. uh, It's funny. uh, I saw something online today. It said, you know, you know, if you castrate your dog, you fix your your male dog. He's still a male dog. He's not a female dog. You know he's Correct. still a dog, and it's the same with human beings. A man is a man, and a woman is a woman. And if anybody doesn't like my politics on that, then that's just too bad because I've got a kid playing Division One tennis right now, and um, I know that she's not going to be able to to beat a man in tennis because they're too fast and they're too strong. And that's I, right. I don't see that. But we don't have strong men anymore that are going to stand up and fight for their rights. You know, women are losing their rights in this society to men who are telling everybody that they're women. It's absolutely wrong. And if we don't get strong men to stand up and support them and stand up and speak out against this trash, then we're going to lose our society. So I'm sorry to get off a little beat on that, but no, 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 but that's the thing. It's like,
1: the people who used to defend the Constitution, that used to defend this country, uh, you know, guys like what you're describing right there, your your life, your motivations, you know, defending your family, your daughters. I've got daughters as well. I feel the same way about all those things you just said, but um, they're in short supply. We got to be more vocal. Um, it's obviously there's a hunger for it. You were on a Twitter spaces that we did yesterday and you, you know what, you almost, you picked up 50% more of your follower count just uh, sitting I mean, in that space for a couple hours.
0: And that's because it's a, it's a basically a thing where people just don't know that I'm out there right now. And as I, as I, you know, get my name more out there and as I do more of these programs, I'm, um, you know, picking up more followers, you know, I do local, I do look, uh, national news a lot but I'm not afforded the opportunity really to get my Twitter page out there or my true social page out there when I'm doing these. Some of the, some of the individuals do it. Like uh, Sebastian Gorka is great. He promotes me a lot and he lets people know I'm out there, but um, it's not the fault of the journalists. It's just that there's just not enough time to squeeze it all in. You know, Um, I'm on the national news a lot. Uh, I think I did eight hits this week alone. And, um, and, and, um, Uh, If you go to my uh, Twitter page, my true social or getter, I always let people know what program I'm coming up on next for that day so that they'll be able to watch.
1: So it's really important. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have this this Kyle Serafin show. It's one of the reasons that Phil and I talked about doing these interviews is I just want to promote voices that are one, that are sane, because God, I like to talk to sane people and not crazy people. And two, I want to talk to people that believe in the America that I grew up in, in the 80s when I was a little kid, where, you know, we knew who the good guys were. We knew who the bad guys were. We knew what America was about. We knew that it was a place that we wanted to defend and protect. And, um, and it wasn't that complicated. And the difference between the left and the right was whether or not we agreed on how to fund it and and who should pay for things but not what the right thing was not that we should take care of children that shouldn't have been negotiable and not whether or not you know men and women should be probably living in, in marriage and taking care of each other and, and doing the things that have always been there and defending women's ability to play sports or whatever other it's so simple it's it's so uh easy so thanks for, for being a, a voice of sanity i really do appreciate it thanks for spending some of your time here on this uh this friday morning which people are going to be hearing on a monday and um yeah i just want to encourage people go follow steve's twitter follow his uh, his true social follow his getter you'll see my retweets all the time and um you know look for these these hits i'll, I'll probably be retweeting a number of them you know we're, we have a, a lot of kind of friends in common in the news media at this point but uh thanks so much for just being an american patriot just a regular guy from from 20 or 30 years ago who just wanted to see this country be successful and for all of your service to our country i'm very appreciative phil you want to uh run some uh, some plugs I know you've got to, you kind of close us out with a few thoughts.
0: Yeah, let's do it. So just a reminder to everybody to check out the give and
1: go. We got Katie who made a $100 donation Kyle writing fight the good fight and god will always be with you. Speaking the truth takes courage and speaking the truth publicly takes enormous courage. Thank you Katie for that uh, those kind words and that donation. Also looking for more five star reviews like this one from Laura who wrote I had to take a break the Amy Nelson interview was riveting. I was so upset I had to take a break to calm down. I will never get that interview out of my head or my heart. Count me in as a serious supporter. And we felt the same way, didn't we, Kyle? Having listened yeah, we to did. Amy's that word, that, that, that had me run. I had tears running down my face when I did that. And when I watched it again, which is not, not very normal for me. Yep. Hit for home. sure. Final thing. Um, check out the yep. KyleSeraphinShow.com for all the merch. We're uh, adding items every day. Yeah, we've got to get uh, we got to get Steve in one of these suspendable shirts. Steve would have been a suspendable if those things were coming down the pipe on him. I don't think he would have stood and taken some of this stuff. The uh, the suspendable shirts anybody could be a suspendable. Those are all my friends who have drawn a line in the sand that refuse to accept tyranny, whether it be from their employer, whether it be from their you know their uh, their municipalities that they're living in that are not going to say I'm just going to comply because everyone else is doing it. They are the ones who are critical thinkers and say that the you know enough is enough. This country needs to survive because. Because it's the shining light on the hill that we grew up with from 20 30 and 40 years ago it just it it was an idea it could still be that idea and the only way we're going to keep it is by being a suspendable somebody who's willing to lose all the things that are in front of you because it's the right battle it's the right hill to die on so um steve again thanks so much for joining me today i'm very appreciative of your time folks tune in to the kyle sarafin show for more retired uh, special agents, for people who are former agents, for people in the national security apparatus, for people who have the nuts to speak out and say the things that are true that we all know, and just hearing these voices that don't otherwise have a platform. That's what we're all about. Please uh, like, share, and subscribe. If you liked it, give it to all your friends so they, uh, they push it out there. And uh, we will catch you again uh, on the next episode of The Kyle Seraphin Show. We do appreciate your support.
0: Thanks for listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Seraphim.